So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello man fans, Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Now, you may remember last series that I asked if any of you had any ideas for this show. People we should interview, stories we should chase. And I'm pleased to say we had a really great response. There are probably half a dozen or so ideas that came in then, um, suggestions that you guys made that we liked enough to actually work up into episodes of the show, which you're going to hear over the next few months. And this is the first one. This is the first ever listener request episode. So be warned. Uh, I know that on local radio, whenever you take listener requests, you invariably end up playing Benny Hill and Agadu. Uh, This week's suggestion came courtesy of man fan Tom Cotton. He clicked the feedback form on our website back in February, and he said, Ollie, I know you're not interested in sports. You got that right. Uh, But check out Paul C. Watson on Twitter. This guy left England and went to Pompeii, one of the four islands that make up the Federated States of Micronesia, all to set up a football team. His story is really interesting, and it's as much about cultural differences as it is about football. I'm sure he'd be really interested in spreading the story further. Uh, Well, Tom, I wrote to Paul, and indeed he was interested in spreading the story further, so here we are. Uh, Last week I went to his house and met him, and his week-old baby was sleeping in the room next door, so I'm not sure how his wife felt about me being there. Uh, But anyway, here we are. You are about to hear, thanks to our listeners, the first ever football interview on The Modern Man. They said it couldn't be done. I should say, even if you... I was about to say hate football, but I'm actually pathologically antagonistic to football. If you feel the same as me, an active consuming disinterest doesn't matter. I promise Paul's story is still interesting. Um, There's another life hack this week as well. So thank you to everyone who got in touch to say they're enjoying that new feature we're doing. People who will never again wash their jeans following last week's show. Uh, If you are enjoying that new feature... Uh, You may have observed it is a sponsored feature. We can only afford to make that thanks to the patronage of Squarespace. So if you are thinking of designing a website in the next few weeks, if you're going to do that anyway, please do use our offer code MAN, M-A-N-N. You can go to squarespace.com. You make yourself a really beautiful website. You get a two-week free trial. And then if you choose to go ahead with it, you get 10% off your first year subscription by using our offer code MAN. And crucially, that sends Squarespace the signal to keep supporting this podcast. As you'll know, if you listen to podcasts, they support a lot of podcasts. We want them to keep supporting our one so we can keep making that section. That genuinely is why we want to do it. We want to bring you more varied magazine content. Uh, Right. 
On this week's show, you're going to learn what Alex Fox sounds like on Laughing Gas. Uh, you will learn how to psych yourself up for a Sunday friendly against the Guam Crushers, and you'll learn how much progress Ollie Peart has made as he embraces our challenge to become a true man about town. Set those expectations accordingly.、Uh, right, let's go. On this week's Modern Man, we were having these very lofty ambitions, but at the heart of it, we had no idea what to expect. Training a football team in a frog-infested marsh, nine thousand miles from home. You know, I'm looking for a lovely way to end my shift. Does anyone want to join me for brunch? And how might a night worker find love in Bristol? Alex Fox has an app for that. But first, it's the first sign of summer. Ollie Pitt with a tan. Hi, Ollie. What's as hot as a summer's day that we should know about this week? Anthem. You know Microsoft. I, ha- I do.、Uh, they've released a although, new game- in my opinion, they've never bettered Word ninety seven. They have released a new Xbox called Xbox One X, and it is the most powerful games console. It's got six teraflops of graphical power. Teraflops. Is- There's petaflops as well. No. Yeah, but. A game is what we're going to talk about, and the、mm-hmm. game is called Anthem. The premise is you're you're something called a freelancer. I can't imagine this. I was going to say it's like literally nothing like being a real <sighs> freelancer because you get an exoskeleton which is called a javelin, and you can basically just travel around this free and open world, killing monsters and completing missions with your mates. You can have up to four people per team. Because we know nothing about gaming, I thought it would make sense that you watch the trailer for this. Just、yeah. watch it. Here you go. It looks a bit like Avatar. The wall. Oh. It's our armor. This is thrilling. It protects us from what lies beyond. See, this is scary. The graphics look incredible. That's the、uh, six petaflops thing. But out there. But of course, they never actually look like this during gameplay, do they? You either live with the choices you make, or die trying to change them. It's interesting you picked up on the graphics because. The thing that blew me away—I could not believe how good it was, like the lighting and the way it had been rendered and all that. It was stunning; like it was absolutely stunning.、Mm. These open-world games now are incredible. If you like the idea of escaping your life, basically, isn't it? You're putting aside more than 15 minutes, like you used to, to play Tetris. You're putting aside an evening, getting away from your life and immersing yourself into a completely different world. I just personally find that really disorientating. I like to be told what to do. I like to have a very clear mission. I don't like the thing where you, I mean, even when I've played like the Lego ones for kids, <laughs> the fact that you have to walk around for ten minutes to work out what it is you're supposed to do, I don't find that fun. I don't find that challenge exciting. I just want someone to tell me, put the triangles into the pink box. Well, it's interesting actually because that brings me on to another fascinating thing about the Xbox, the new one. They've completely neglected virtual reality, or as they call it in Microsoft. Mixed reality, because they talk about augmented reality and virtual reality. They've decided to sideline it temporarily because they're, they're then essentially saying, "Right, Sony, go ahead, win virtual reality," because we don't think it's that big a deal. Well, I think one of the reasons they've done it is because Sony aren't winning, so they've sold a million of their PS4 headsets, which sounds like a lot, but they also sold 55 million consoles. So. There's still quite a long way to go. People just aren't buying them. I don't think people want to strap massive goggles on their head, which goes completely counter to my prediction a couple of years ago about virtual reality and that it was going to take over the world.、Uh, what else have you got for us this week, Ollie? Yogurt. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 
It's I'm, been around for a while. It, it certainly has. But I know that Greek yogurt is a big thing. I should say yogurt for our American friends. No, they didn't no, you know what we were talking about. Should never say that. Uh, Greek yogurt has become quite a big thing stateside, hasn't it? Recently. So, uh, what's the latest yogurt trend? Savory yogurt. This has come from my uh, exclusive source at Country Life magazine. Yep. They've said that this is going to be one of the big summer food trends. So, do you? How do you eat it? Is the question because. Well, how I mean, do you eat normal yogurt? Oh, well, you're opening a can of worms here. Am I? No, I mean, only if it's gone off drastically. What I do is I buy thick Greek yogurt that, and, and I use it in a savoury way, I guess. I put it on like curries and stuff like that to cool them down. That's that tends to be where my yogurt consumption lies. It's a very middle class thing to do. I do it. I like it. What is? It on, putting it on curries. Is that a middle class thing to do? Yeah, but I don't do you think do Indians it? Do you would do... agree with you. No, no. Do you <laughs> do it and then to do. just randomly put something that looks fresh and green on top and yes. then some... Bla- yeah, because then it looks good, right? Yeah, and if I don't have things that it should be, like coriander, I end up chopping off the leaves off the top of a celery. This is slightly different. It's basically a bowl of yoghurt, mm. loads of stuff in it. Mm. They've suggested crumbled feta, cucumber, Ugh. mint, Ooh. avocado. Oh, but that's not yoghurt. This... That's tzatziki, basically, isn't it? Well, no, tzatziki is yoghurt with cucumber and... And mint and garlic. Yeah, but it doesn't have crumbled feta. Okay, but essentially you're moving into, as far as I'm concerned, a dip there, not a yoghurt. Listen, I've made you some. Right. Eat it. Wow, you have actually made something. I have made... That's tzatziki with paprika on it, as far as I can tell. It is yoghurt with paprika, cracked black pepper, olive oil and bits of cucumber which have been cut... Very hastily and yep. chunkily. They have, yeah. Um, I haven't yeah, included right. any additional ingredients in there. I know this is going to taste like tzatziki, Ollie. I'm going to put this in my mouth. I'm going to say, oh, yeah, that's a nice dip. Go on, then. Okay. Actually, I'll tell you what it tastes like specifically. It tastes like tzatziki without the garlic in it. So it actually does taste more like yogurt and less like a dip. Would you eat a bowl of it? When is my question. Like, what's it replacing? Is it replacing a cookie at four o'clock? I suppose so in that scenario, yeah. It's healthier than that, isn't it? Yeah, in summer, you're kind of like, I want something savoury. I want something cooling. Can't have ice cream because it's too fattening. But it's savoury yogurt makes you want to dip something in it. That's the problem. Yeah, so I want you crisps. Up, right exactly. Now. Yeah, I totally <laughs> want crisps. Get a crisps with it. I mean, they do so, say that you can yeah. replace mayonnaise in burgers with it and stuff like that, and you can spread it on rye bread and flaked mackerel. But really, it's not it's bad, one Whacking great bag of crisps. It's the first thing you've ever made me, apart from an espresso. I made you salty coffee once. You added salt to a coffee in a coffee shop. You did, yeah. So I, I suspect that everybody's going to be walking around eating savoury yoghurt. The prep test is the test, isn't it? That's when you know when a food trend's gone viral in the UK, isn't it? When Give- they start serving it for pound thirty with uh, cold uh, parsnip crisps. Three weeks, you'll see it in the shops. Right, now before we go, Ollie, it is time to check in with your task to become a true trendsetter. How's it been going? All right. Take a parliamentary ghost train. No. Tickets to see Hamilton. No. Triple uh, A access to a festival. Yes. Oh, okay. Which festival? Don't know yet. A band got in touch. Okay. An elite dating app? No. Sitting at the chef's table? No. Trying the latest cult skincare treatment? No. Becoming a Freemason? Yes. What? You're a Freemason? No, I'm not one yet. What? How are you going with it? Well, they got in touch. The Freemasons got in touch. The Freemasons got in touch. It's weird how they do it. How do yeah? What's they send the, a bird? What's the social <laughs> media equivalent of a secret handshake? No, Twitter. They're right. so open. Okay, I'm thinking secret weirdos. They're like, oh, all right, Ollie, Twitter. Do you want to have a chat about the Freemasons? We've got loads of social events going on. Yeah, let's meet up for a drink. They sound lovely. Uh yeah, but that's a different thing, isn't it? What? That's like Scientology, isn't it? Saying, yeah, 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 we'll handle press inquiries, but they're not letting you in to become a Freemason. They're just talking to you and giving you the positive side of Freemasonry. Well, they've talked about 
the initiation process and how I probably wouldn't get initiated within the 10 weeks that are allowed for this challenge. Okay. Well, I'm still going to push as far as I can. Okay. What, what do you have to do? He hasn't told me anything, but he has said that I should watch a documentary on Sky One about the Freemasons. But I don't have a sky, so I'm stuck there. No, the the idea of this challenge is not for you to blag Sky TV. The idea of this challenge is for you to actually go out there and do this stuff. What if that's just a stepping stone to completing the challenge? No, follow that up, please, and say, I'm not going to watch the documentary. I want to become a Freemason. Can we start initiating me? What do I need to do? Okay, fine. Okay. Uh, Holding a Nando's black card, how are you progressing with that? All right, in that I found a tweet from Andy Peters. Andy Peters, children's television presenter from the 80s. The very same. Now does the competitions on uh, Good Morning Britain. I don't actually know what he does, does he? He, he d- definitely does. I watch it every morning. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he tweeted in response to somebody tweeting about the card. Didn't actually read the entire sort of conversation. He said, I invented the card. Hashtag fact. Andy Peters invented the Nando's black card. That's what he said. And, well, from what I gather, he never lies. So I'm going to get in touch. Wow, I didn't expect that avenue. Neither did I. The only other thing is, if you talk about getting a Nando's black card or you ask them for one, you'll you'll never get one. You're banned instantly. But that's fine. I don't want you to get one. I just want you to hold one. I mean, it's not like Fight Club, is it? I mean, is it people with Nando's black cards can't even tell you they've got one? Well, that's. I think that is it, yeah. No, because the whole point is that, that people take pictures of them in Nando's ordering loads of chicken with their black card. It's, it is out there. Okay. But I think if you talk about you having one, then it's all like a bit like they kill you. Okay. Becoming Twitter verified. How are you doing with that? Not, not, not too well. And I'm. I think you've put that in there on purpose because everybody keeps telling me to listen to your other podcast to find out the answer, <laughs> no. and I'm refusing to do so because yeah. I want to figure it out myself. This isn't about me, Ollie. This is about you. All right. Well, I followed verified uh, the Twitter verified. Okay, that account is. On I can exclusively reveal that is stage one. Yes, follow at verified on Twitter. Okay, I've, I've okay. completed stage one. I know that much. It's not that difficult to work out stage two, Ollie. You just need to look at their profile. All right. Come on, buck your ideas up. Fine. By this time next week, I want you to have at least applied to be Twitter verified, not just have investigated into it, because you've done step one, that's the easy bit. Yeah. I want to know more about whether you can be initiated into the Freemasons properly. Okay. And I want you to be further down the road to either meeting Andy Peters or touching Anando's black card, preferably both. Don't get the two confused and touch Andy Peters. Got it. Hello Man fans, I'm Rosie Slosick of TheMenHaven.com and I'm a business finances mentor for female entrepreneurs. These are my top three Squarespace life hacks for how to liberate your man from his job. First of all, actually go and have a chat with him. Talk to your partner about how he feels about it because it's a wonderful goal to actually want to be able to for him not to even have a job at all. But it's amazing how much stuff that actually brings up, stuff that not necessarily either of you actually really believe in in your own head. All the cultural conditioning stuff about, you know, not being a real man. Even if he doesn't believe that and he knows he's secure in his masculinity and you know he is, it might be that uh, members of the family are going to have problems with that. And it's a brilliant thing to do to actually have that discussion between you before you even get to that part. My second tip is to actually treat your household like it's a proper business. This is one for, particularly for women, where very, very easy to actually start taking on responsibility for tasks. 
in our heads. So for example, I saw a wonderful uh, blog post recently saying that it's women who actually have the household management mental load. Women, you'll know what I'm talking about. You go down to, to go and do some gardening, but you've mentally checked off whether or not the washing needs to be done. You've checked off if you've got enough food in the house. You've checked off whether or not what you're having for dinner, and you've started it and put it in the slow cooker. It's all those sorts of things, and one big step actually towards having that monetary freedom is women not having that stress in our heads and actually asking the men in our lives to say, hello, I need you to carry this stuff as well, not just do what I tell you to do, because that's just delegating. It's like the, you need to share the, the CEO response of the household and not just delegate it. After all, your man isn't just a secretary. And my third tip would be to have a chat actually about what happens in your business. You doesn't necessarily need to understand it or agree with you, but it's just sharing what is actually happening. And it is, it is important. And what I would suggest is you have three minutes, whether every day, every week or every other day, and he just listens to you and he's not allowed to interrupt and he's not allowed to say anything and you can start with a hug and end with a hug but it's just that sacred time when you know that you're listened to so i'm rosie slosek of themoneyhaven.com and here's one more life hack for you man fans start your own website with squarespace today and get a two-week free trial using the code man with two n's to get 10 percent off Now, like many boys up and down the country, Paul Watson spent every Saturday in his childhood obsessively checking the football scores uh, on teletext as this was the 1980s. During the week, he trained, he played, he thought of little else. And even at university, he studied languages, but used that primarily to write about Italian football. Uh, Then, at the age of 25, he had a reality check. His dream of getting snapped up by a scout to become a big-time professional footballer just wasn't going to happen. Here's what he did next. I was never going to make it in football. You know, I wasn't even close to making it as a semi-professional player. So I was trying to work out a way, well, can I remain involved in this, this thing that I love? And this conversation came up that I think plays out across the country every time England play Andorra, every time England play San Marino, this conversation, I've heard it happen in pubs, you know, well, we, we could play for San Marino, so what's what's the point? We could play for Andorra. And it usually filters out in the, the course of one evening and people sort of have a few drinks, forget about it. But when I was living with, with my mate Matt, we were both as, as badly obsessed as each other with football. We both had absolutely no skill. We had about the, the level of skill that any normal person has, which is you know it's it's negligible compared to any professional and so we were having this conversation and it was a rare situation where this conversation took place completely sober at about midday so people say well were you were you drunk you must have been wasted no no we were we were sat there in the middle of our day I was trying to plug away as an Italian football journalist he was basically professionally unemployed and we were just sat there saying well actually let's look into this you know of course we can't play for Andorra because they're actually better than people say. Yeah, because if you think about it, when Andorra play someone like England or, or Wales, they may lose 6-0 at worst, 5 or 6 as a threshold. <laughs> uh, they lose somewhere between, and San Marino the same. Occasionally San Marino will concede 8 or 9 to someone like Germany. But actually, if you think about the logistics of that, if you or I, if a normal human being was on a field with England or Italy or Germany, it would be 40 or 50 goals surely going in. You've got to think, I've been in Sunday league games where I've lost 6-0. So I'm thinking, 
it would be a pretty big defeat. So these Andorra players, they're not bad footballers. I mean, they're much better than anyone I've ever played against. So you started on a quest to try and find the worst international football team in the world. Yep. We went all the way down the, the FIFA rankings and we were looking at the very bottom at the time and we were looking at teams like Montserrat and Bhutan were, were down there at the time. And Wikipedia was, was our sort of trusty source on this. Anytime you looked at one of these countries, you'd find actually there would be players with a track record in the English leagues or players that had an, a record that would equate to somewhere in the English league that was far too high for us. You know, if, if a player in Montserrat's team had played in League Two, you know, the fourth division of English football or, or wherever, there's no chance we would be able to play for that team. You know, we, we would be found out immediately. So we kept going down and even at the very bottom, there was no chance. And this was when it emerged. And I think I imagine it was just a clickable link on Wikipedia that there are teams that aren't in FIFA. And that sort of levelled the playing field for us because when we started going down those rankings, you're looking at a really strange mix of states that aren't recognised, you know, half-recognised states, politically contentious states, but also just places without any grass. But actually, there are these, I think it was at the time, six sovereign states that are recognised nations but have no have no football team uh, or no FIFA-recognised football team. And amongst those at the very bottom of these rankings was, was Pompeii. P-O-H-N-P-E-I and actually that jumped out at us immediately obviously because of sound like Pompeii the volcanic town near Naples so you know this this place had this charm already they've never won a game of any sort they're widely recognised as the worst team in the world and we thought well that's pretty much where you want to start so we sent off an email to the only email address we could find for their FA and we didn't say you know we want to play for your national team we sort of felt that could be taken as disrespectful at that mm. point even even in our deluded state we thought that might be seen as a little bit brash so we sent an email just saying something vague like we'd love to know more about football in your in your nation and we thought there's that we honestly thought we'd never get a reply mm. i mean it was something we had to do so that we could tick that box and say well look we sent the email so to the extent where when a reply came in i'd almost forgotten what it was that we'd sent i saw this reply come in from a, a guy called charles musana and that that was when it took this bizarre turn that the the reply from the the president of the Pompeii Soccer Association, you know, 9,000 miles away from, from here, said, um, thanks for your interest. I'd, I'd love to help you. I'm just in the process of moving to London. Yeah. And that was the moment where, you know, he said, you, I'd, I'd happily meet you for a, a drink in London. And, you know, there's this point where you think that's, that's beyond a coincidence. That's a, the strangest coincidence. So from there, it obviously made sense to meet him. And when we met him, it sort of escalated quicker than we could have anticipated that, you know, we we met this lovely guy originally from Uganda who had tried to develop football in Pompeii. Um, he'd done it for a decade and he'd had moderate success and then he'd sort of run out of steam. We all met up in the centre of London and, and went for a drink and he basically said, well, if you guys want to play for Pompeii, that's that's fine. He didn't really understand quite what the point of that would be. He said, well you can't really play for them because the team doesn't exist anymore. But if you want to go there and set the team up again, that would be exactly what I want. You know, that would be my dream. But you probably won't want to do that, will you? Because, you know, you're sane human beings. So he dangled in front of you the carrot of not that you could be a professional player, but that you could be an international coach. I guess so. I mean, it was never really discussed in as open terms as that, but we felt a bit like, I think England had just recruited Capello around that time. So for us, this was sort of like the, we felt like, you know, this is this is our version of that. We yes. were expecting on the way home to have people ask us for comments and the press. And the way that I would tell it as a bar anecdote is to say, well, 
obviously then next thing you know we're on a plane but actually it was the start of a sort of um 16 month process basically of telling ourselves well is this the this is probably the craziest weirdest thing we could do but but having at the same time to save up the money to do it very gradually and what were your friends saying this is the craziest thing we told almost nobody and the reason for this uh, makes people laugh we told almost nobody because we were sure they would steal the idea <laughs> and it sounds bizarre now but the biggest nightmare that i would have through that 18 months was not that it was financial insanity but that John down the dog and duck would say, I'm going to go and coach in Micronesia. The, the first thing, I thought the first thing, we'll get off the plane and there'll be some British coach already there. And that'll be, <laughs> but no, I honestly, we were worried someone would take the idea. It's not a revolutionary idea. I think the only thing that we had that other people didn't was the idiocy to follow it through. I guess we, we were in enough of a cul-de-sac, we felt, with our professional lives and with our this sense of sort of having missed the boat somehow with our adult lives that we we were willing to actually go through with this and i think that's the only literally the only thing that marked us out so in that 16 months how did the idea as you put it change in your mind because what went from a sort of fun let's search the internet and come up with a crazy suggestion thing became a reality that was going to cost you thousands of pounds to go there you were going to mm. have to give up your job pause your relationships what was the mission in your mind at that point we would try and hatch these these really sort of over-the-top plans for what we would do. And, you know, this plan of getting Pompey to world domination via sort of saying to each other, so I guess eventually we'll get into a World Cup qualifier. And we were having these very lofty ambitions. But at the heart of it, we had no idea what to expect. We had no idea what we were preparing for. But it manifested itself in me trying to get into really good physical shape, trying to learn how to coach a little bit. And also trying to round up equipment so we could take out a load of footballs and boots and things that we thought they might not have. And the purpose of all of this, I think, essentially was to try and convince ourselves we were qualified to take on the role of effectively sort of rebuilding or at least basically building a football nation. And Pompeii isn't a struggling nation, is it? It's not sort of a developing country in the sense that in this slightly colonialist way, when you're talking about going and bringing football to the natives, people yeah. might assume. No, yeah. So did you did you worry about... The sense that you might be thinking of this this country as a charity case. It's an interesting thing. The colonial thing was something that actually really worried us from the off. You know, it's never a good look for white British guys to go out to other parts of the world and start telling them what they should be doing. That That's something that made both of us cringe from the off, you know. it's So Pompeii's a slightly weird place. And it's one of the federated states of Micronesia. Uh, there's four islands they're separated by vast distances um, Yap, Chuk, Koshrai and Pompeii that are all one nation technically and they are in the middle of nowhere but they are a US protectorate so the US has the right to put troops in there the US has this like sphere of influence they use the dollar the US pays them a vast sum of money to do that the islands are close enough to Hawaii they're pretty relatively close to Hawaii so right. they don't want anywhere that an enemy could bomb them from basically mm -hmm. it's, and it's created this culture of dependence so actually it isn't poor in the sense of the lowest GDP countries in the world there's not a, a real low low level of poverty but there's also not a lot of upward mobility so it's a very strange environment I'd describe it as a rotting paradise you know it's a beautiful paradise island but there's rubbish in a lot of places rotting and there's buildings that don't get completed that sort of are left to fall to pieces there's there's this sort of odd half-finished feel to Pompeii. And what did you find when you 
got there in terms of their football team? Well, in, we had the conversation, what do we do if we have 100 people? What do we do if 200 people, what do we do if 500 people? We had initially one person turn up, <laughs> a guy called Ryan, who actually became key striker for us, but he had an England shirt on and he was at the field. And with this field is... Um, the most probably the most stunning football field in the world but it had one rotting goal net one crossbar on one goal another goal that's falling to pieces the grass was pretty much knee length there were pools of water everywhere toads hopping around so we're trying to process this walking onto the field like these yeah like these colonial idiots probably with a bag of footballs under our arms sort of sweating buckets because it's 40 degree heat as it always is and we look over and there's one guy in an England shirt and we'd, we'd been told, you know, the announcement's been put out. You'll have every football player in Pompeii is going to come out. Everyone's looking forward to it. And after a bit of time, we got maybe six aside, people just gradually filtering in, filtering in. And and this was the introduction to sort of the Pompeian way that it everyone's on, on island time. You know, everyone turns up an hour after they say there's no real sense of urgency. It's not like the UK where you put out a time and people turn up and... And they maybe make a mark in their calendar. People people walked past and saw us playing and thought, well, what's that? You know, what are they doing? And so they came and joined in. And is that because there isn't actually a football culture there? They don't follow the big international matches on the telly. They don't know what the Premier League is. Exactly. There's no football culture. You can watch some games on ESPN, but you have to have effectively have a Sky TV for that. So most vast majority of people don't. It's only really the hotels that do. And the, the foreigners live in, are in the hotels, not the locals. So... People didn't really watch football. They didn't have any idea what they were trying to imitate. And it manifested itself in this weird form of football that was going on that was obviously through coaches having arrived in the past and taught vague elements of it. Some of it was just home developed. And, you know, you'd have people just catching the ball and booting it into the car park every now and again. <laughs> not not for any malicious intent. You'd have people headfirst sliding into someone's knees and that was just a sort of tackling. And so we had this bizarre game but in it in it were fragments of really talented players who I think had also been coached by the guy who we met Charles Musana who'd, who'd done an awful lot of coaching over there for, for a decade and coached a lot of these kids so we had these these small glimpses of real potential real talent and so what did it resemble by the time you were done by the time we were done we had a we had a decent team we had a team that could hold their own at sort of a low, a low English level so maybe English ninth division level where I reckon we would have held our own but what we'd managed to do which the thing that I think was the biggest challenge in a way was we maintained the Pompeian spirit of the team so we didn't we didn't make them into a British team we didn't make them play 4-4-2 and belt the ball out of play at the first sign of trouble we we tried to actually harness the talents and the the things that were useful in the the local mentality so their bravery their actual lack of fear because in England, we were completely terrified the whole time of making a mistake. English players from the age of four or five are told, don't be the one who gives away a goal. If you have to, hoof the ball off the field. These guys had, didn't have that in them because there was no one to do that. So if they had the ball in defence, they'd often try and dribble it around four people and they'd get tackled, they'd concede a goal and they'd just have a laugh about it. So we tried to maintain that, that, that sort of love of the game and that adventurous spirit while also slightly making it more practical so that we could go and play games and not get absolutely destroyed and it was a fine it was a fine balance that I don't know if we always got right but we tried to just make people enjoy what they were doing and not become Brits you know fake Brits in in Micronesia because that would wouldn't have done any service to them really to be honest one of our biggest missions was to try and find someone to play against and the natural team to play against were Guam 
Guam to most people in the UK is is possibly a place that's remembered for a World War Two battle. It, it's got vague connotations there, but most people have not heard of it. In Micronesian terms, it's the Las Vegas. It's the glittering lights. It's the big, the big giant of the region, because Guam actually has a very successful football program that had started like Micronesia with a few kickarounds and has built to the level where they're playing and competing in in Asian competitions. They're giving a good account of themselves against people like India, and you know they've they've been a real success story. So Guam also were the last team that Pompey had played or that Micronesia had played, uh, and they'd lost sixteen one. So our whole mission really was to go to Guam, and this was what this was sort of became a uh, a byword for getting players pumped up to say we're going to Guam, we're going to go to Guam, and we're going to win a game in Guam. And this is something that doesn't happen. Pompeii and teams don't do that. So there's there was a really odd feeling that Guam was just unattainable. You know, Guam was a byword. You'd, you'd get people sometimes say this isn't Guam, as if to say, what do you expect? <laughs> This, this has fallen off the wall, but this isn't Guam. And so we set about saying to these guys, you know what, we're going we're gonna to go there. We're going to play a game. We had no money for this, and we failed on many, many fronts to raise the money for it. Uh, and then this, this airline, Coin Airways, who Matt knows the, the head of them, Larry Coin, we had a conversation where we explained what we were doing. He sort of looked at us like we we're crazy and said, well, if it's 10 grand you need, here's 10 grand. Go and win that game. And we, we'd looked for sponsorship for months, and this one guy basically said yeah go and do that sounds great and so we got the flights booked up which was no mean feat given that the players didn't have passports most of them didn't know exactly when they were born and quite a few of them had different spellings to their names than were their official spellings which which was very normal on the island um so all this flung into action and we booked this date in guam that we were going to play four games three against uh club teams and one against a national team and suddenly the problem had gone from being well, there's no way we're going to ever find a team to play, so we're stuck in this limbo to being, oh my God, we're actually going to play against someone. We're going to get destroyed. You know, we, we'd trained these guys now for a year, a little bit more, when we started building up to this game. We're thinking, well, what good have we done? If we get these players built up, we keep saying to them, you know, you can win. This is this is going to be like a big statement for Pompey as a nation. We're, we're going to, well, as a state, we're going to win this game. <laughs> we go out and lose 30-0. It's not really going to do much good for them. I'd understand why the locals might not have any idea, but you could have afforded to get a flight to Guam and check them out. Actually, we we couldn't really. This is the thing. We were incredibly broke by that point. We'd spent so much of our own money and we weren't getting any money at all back. So I was just running up a debt. I was borrowing money off my brother, my wife. Anyone who I knew would lend me money, I, I took money from. So I was about, about 10 grand in debt. So I did go to Guam to visit, to sort of scout them out on the way back home as I managed to tie it in with my flights home once. But actually, it was pretty inconclusive because what you could see was them playing on this pristine pitch. They looked pretty good. And then we were playing on this sort of frog-infested marsh uh, and it was always torrentially raining. And so it was almost impossible to compare what our level was to theirs. All I knew was that our guys had come on leaps and bounds and they were really starting to believe in it and there was this new purpose in in them there's sort of a view that because of this passivity micronesians and and they tend to be quite uh laid back but almost to the point of apathy and i think it's to do with this the fact that there's a culture of dependence the fact that there's not much stimulation or encouragement for enterprise there and so our players often came across as very lazy and a lot of our guys hadn't had the easiest lives but suddenly they were very focused and we were in the gym at 5 a.m when it was the only time it was cool enough to be in there so we'd really pump these guys up and it was pretty clear that Guam were much much better than us so 
suddenly had this thought of, well, what have we, have we just basically raised all these guys' hopes, pushed them past their limits, really tried to sort of change them into this, this team of, of people who believe in themselves and believe in their island and the, the intrinsic value of, of who they are. And then they'll get destroyed. And they'll come home and say, yeah, don't bother. You know, basically, don't bother doing that. <laughs> okay, I'm with you. We're in the final reel of the movie, aren't we? Suddenly, yeah. it's like watching Cool Runnings again. Yes. H- how did the Jamaican bobsleigh team do? <laughs> well, it's first game, we played against a team called Rovers, I think. Oh, no, Crushers first game. and um, The Guam Crushers. Yeah, I mean, it was a funny <laughs> thing. They were a second division team at the time, and they didn't look that great. But they were just, you know, the pitch was bone dry which didn't help us uh our guys were incredibly nervous and um we lost we lost 3-2 and we it was the most mixed feeling you can possibly have because in a way i suspected we could have lost every game 10-0 and it wouldn't have been a shameful thing because we had no idea but actually we really should have won and we we choked completely choked the players just lost this belief they could win and this team of slightly jobbing Sunday leaguers basically beat us 3-2 and even looked a bit apologetic about winning because I think they sensed it meant so much to our guys mm-hmm. there's footage of it from uh, it's on Guam TV as well and our players are in tears you know it means that much to them for these Guam players it's just a friendly it's a kick around but um, a lot of Pompeian community in Guam had turned up there were flags of banners one of our hardest players the real hard man enforcer of our team Denson it's like you know a guy you really wouldn't mess with is there in floods of tears just uh, and it's this moment where I'm thinking I'm sad and I'm, I'm disappointed we didn't win but on the other hand 3-2 is pretty creditable we had the next game the next day against another team in the second division so we basically took a gamble and we played them a video of the game and um, we said, you know, this will either demoralise them or this will pump them up. And luckily, it really pumped them up. Because they saw themselves looking quite good, actually. They, they saw that they actually played some pretty good football. I yeah. mean, they, they were looking decent. And they also were really angry at the defeat. Uh, and, and brilliantly, they'd become quite British without us knowing. And were saying, you know, it's a refereeing decision. What was that penalty? There wasn't a single bad decision in that game. But they were saying, yeah, it was a disgraceful decision. So actually, as coaches, we're saying, no, you've got to look at what went wrong. But none of this is external you know we we could have won this game if we believed we could win so we gave them this whole we pumped them up the next day before this other game again against some unwitting Sunday league team who had just signed up for a friendly against this visiting team probably didn't have any idea what it meant to us and so we gave this speech they all started sort of chanting we were did sort of they're doing local Pompeian chants in the dressing room so they left the dress the dressing room was sort of pounding to this chant and they came out onto the field like looking like warriors going into battle the other team had sort of sauntered up like a Sunday league team sort of in their own time getting their hoofing a ball around and you could see the look on their face was sort of like oh what have we just signed up for and sure enough our guys just set about destroying them it was it was bizarre to see it almost because crucially we went two nil up pretty quickly and from there this whole thing of of not believing we could win just just went out the window and about 80 minutes in we were seven nil up um guys were running rings around them and then we conceded to make it seven one i think and our goalkeeper charles it's charles but they call it charles said oh good shot mate or like good shot none which means mate to this guy who scored and the rest of his teammates all rounded on like what do you mean good shot like as if it had been some some defection of of his uh his loyalties they were livid they're like you don't tell him it's a good shot you know they were all just still so bummed up and i'm on the sidelines just a complete bag of nerves because i'm just there going it's only it's only six goals it's only a six goal lead 
10 minutes left, six goal lead. It's only a six goal lead. I'm just there, nervous, pacing, thinking, I guess thinking if we concede now and we lose six goals in this, they will never, ever play football again. Pompey will literally stop playing football because, you know, you can't throw this away. But until that final whistle went and we'd actually won, it just couldn't relax. It was this bizarre feeling of of tension. And, and when it did happen, it was like a... It was as if they'd won the World Cup final. It was, and and these these again these baffled poor poor guys from Guam who, you know, were just normal blokes playing a Sunday league game, slunk off the field and sort of you know well done, well done guys and sort of went off and saw these guys they're running laps of honour, dumping sort of the Kool Aid over each other and sort of all this as if again as if we'd won some major tournament. But to us, it, to us, it was, and to these guys, it was, and the the finale against Guam the first time it rained in Guam so it was actually the most like Pompeii it had been because in Pompeii it rains a lot an awful awful lot it rains every day pretty much uh, and our players actually quite enjoyed the fact the pitch was getting destroyed it was starting to be a mud bath and we held on really well we actually ended up being three nil down after just after half time we missed a few chances and then the, the heavens opened it was absolutely torrential and everyone's getting drenched and our players are playing better and better and then the floodlights went out. No. After 75 minutes, the floodlights went out and they couldn't get them back on. And that was that. So technically we lost 3-0. But it was a, the weirdest end. You know, we went to Guam and we we left with our heads held high and that was it really. Okay, so, you know, you didn't take them to the World Cup, but you took them to what was for them the biggest match they could possibly play. And on balance, they did pretty well. But if you take the international competition out of it, hmm. which is the scenario you were greeted with when you arrived you know here's a team that basically doesn't exist and doesn't have anyone to play and therefore they're not represented by FIFA like you said and there isn't a football culture certainly there isn't a lot of money for players or anything like that and there isn't even the kind of sex appeal of I'm a footballer to boast about to everyone else I suppose what I'm getting at is when you strip away what football is to most people in this country what are you left with I mean what what is the point in its bare bones of playing football, that well, that was the amazing thing was that the the motivation for these guys we we couldn't get them motivated in the way the ways that you would in the UK. There was no motivation, as you say, for money because there's no money, there's no fame, there's no sex appeal. The, none of these things were there. What got them was a sense of community and a sense of purpose, and I think those two things were really lacking. We took young athletes with potential who generally just give up and sort of stop bothering uh hence the sort of sky high obesity rate in Pompeii it's not people had this idea that our team was obese you know they say oh well your players must be all xxl shirts or xxxl and they say no no it's that they are promising athletes and then they have nothing to aspire to so what what really football became for these guys was this sounds very tacky but an outlet to express themselves a way to show that they have abilities a community so they they had this amazing team spirit that you know, like English team spirit, it was mostly just through relentless piss-taking out of each other and mostly a relentless piss-taking out of me and Matt. But it was lovely. It was this sort of sense of them belonging to something. And then that became a little bit more when we took it into the context of competing. It was a sense of saying, we are something and we, we count for something. I mean, it, you're talking in positive terms about the kind of tribalism that turns me off being a football supporter. And I'm wondering now, as you're saying it, whether it's because... The teams that I've been introduced to, you know, Chelsea, West Ham, whatever, that people are fans of, I kind of feel like it's a phony tribalism. People talk about we scoring a goal and I think, well, it wasn't you. And, you know, it's some bloke from France who's just come over to visit and, you know, of course he scored a goal because he's on loads of money. 
grassroots football is just something very different, isn't it? It's really different. And you're, you're quite right. I actually noticed this because I'm a Bristol City fan my entire life and very passionate at many points. And I'd always referred to Bristol City as we. It was all we, we, we. And then actually coming back from this, Pompeii was we. You know, we were. it actually meant something to us as people. We were part of it. And coming back to see Bristol City now and, uh, you know, it's a lot of people who are playing for them because they're being paid money. We don't really have any influence as fans I don't know it changed my relationship I sort of I understood what it was that I'd been missing in football and it was that sense of actually a community being involved in its team and it is still there at grassroots level it's the lower you go the more that is that is the feeling and that's why people love Sunday league football you know it's it's what are you playing for at Sunday league but that sense of community and the sense of sort of value and your mates you know it's it there's there's something still really beautiful there and it's still present in England it's just you have to go down quite low I think to find it I've always argued that every league is as valid as a, as any other league you know you it's only this this view of the Premier League as being all powerful that is creating this if I had my way um, I would think people would be a lot more proud of their own local teams Paul Watson uh, his book, by the way, is absolutely brilliant. It is called Up Pompeii. Uh, and there's a lot more to the story about how they raised the funds for the team and all of his inner doubts about everything he was doing. Uh, I've put a link to the book on our website, modernman.co.uk. Uh, Alex Fox is up next after this. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Come with me, fellow listener, and let's venture into the foxhole with Alex Fox. I am going to respond to you with an animalistic yet enthusiastic sound. 42 episodes in and still innovating. How are you? I'm really great. I'm particularly great today. Do I seem perkier than usual, Ollie? You're a pretty perky person generally. I'm I'm a pert breast of a human being, (laughs) I would hope. Yeah. I'd certainly say you don't seem sad. Good. I'm glad. Well, the reason I ask is because I've been sent... You know, I'm always getting weird, really weird shit in the post, Yes, right? I, I do. Yeah. She's uh, just pulled something out of her bag that looks like drugs, so this might account for her perkiness. Well, this has come directly from the people in the laboratories at Boost Oxygen. This is a canister of 95% pure pink grapefruit-scented oxygen. And they mailed it to me because it's, it's usually used by athletes who are training in, in very high altitudes. And they're telling me that if I breathe this in before or during sex, it should, I quote, um, directly fuel all my body and mind functions and increase my ability to recharge and recover okay. during strenuous exercise. I mean, that'll just go for oxygen generally, right? Yeah. That we can yeah. breathe for free and are doing now. But no, this is uh, because it's a lot purer. It's supposed to make you feel a lot more alert. Have okay. a go. Basically, you, you, you put this pink bit over your mouth yeah and then inhale through your mouth and exhale through your nose whilst depressing the button so your nose yeah. goes over the top of the rim like that yeah. and then I, <laughs> so i just i depress the nozzle the whole way through breathing yes okay that's a lot stop now holly that's a lot <laughs> okay 
I feel normally when you do that, you feel like your voice is going to go funny, like when you've had yeah, helium. Like when you've had helium. But I sound okay, I think. Does it make you giggle? It made me feel really, really giggly. Uh, do you know, it's a weird... Like, obviously, I've now just inhaled this thing, so I feel like I should feel something. Yeah. If if you hadn't told me that I'd just done that, then I, I suspect I'd feel nothing. But now I'm looking out for it. Yeah, I feel quite alert. I felt really, really giggly, and I couldn't work out whether that was because my brain had just been flooded with oxygen and I was on a high, yeah. or whether, for me, I associate this with nitrous oxide, <laughs> with, you know, laughing gas. Yeah. So I'm not sure whether I just... The, the, the sensation of huffing anything in just made me feel guilty. Shall I have do you want to have some as well, Alex? I'm about to essentially huff some airwick here, okay. listeners. So we'll see whether it improves my ability to give great sexual advice. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> it just makes me you laugh. You actually are laughing. <laughs> I think just because... Is that a helpless reaction? I think just because it's a patently ridiculous thing to do <laughs> and it gives you a head rush. I am feeling myself talking more quickly than I was before. And, uh, and I am feeling... Jolly. Yeah. Goes, I wouldn't go as far to say, like, sexual. Quite how someone would react if I whipped out a canister of oxygen in bed, I don't know. But it's a talking point, isn't it? it We're always trying is. to get people to have conversations about sex. So. Hey, I'll tell you another talking point, Alex. Uh-huh. On every distinguished dinner table in the land. Yes. It's where people buy their condoms from. And the answer, of course, is mycondom.com, who have sponsored, as ever, our listener question this week. Alex, remind us of their remarkable service. Well, as their name suggests, they sell all the condoms that you could ever require plus lubricants plus sex toys and they've got a brilliant blog their blog is really worth checking out the stories are always really interesting including uh, this week a tale about how a russian company are apparently about to market a condom which has a small battery pack attached to it uh, and gives you a mild electric shock as you wear it um, for pleasure rather than for pain a mild shock for your cock uh, that also transfers to your partner during sex the the company who are based in st peter Petersburg say the condom features a conductive coating and a small button battery which triggers a 3.5 volt current uh, and apparently it was inspired by homemade electric sex aids created during the Soviet era. And, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll wait for the Android plug-in. Here is our question of the week. It's from Phil, age 34, who says, How does a man that works nights and weekends find a partner? I live in Bristol, I work shifts... And I've tried searching popular dating websites, but they don't allow you to search via working hours. I've even tried ones designed for shift workers, like dating all hours and uniform dating, but they don't give me what I want, and they're not that popular in the UK. You would have thought that online dating would be ideal for night workers, uh, of which there are a few, um, but the popular sites say they don't want to match people by shifts, only by personalities. Is there a trick I'm missing? I've recently started a college course to find like-minded people learning Japanese. <laughs> That's a real tick list, isn't it? I'm in Bristol. I'm working nights. I'm learning Japanese. Are you the same? Yeah. Um, but none of this has really helped. What should I do? Well, I've got to say, Phil, I think you're doing a lot of good things already. But first, I have to thank you for giving me a new insight into why people use the dating app Uniform Dating. Yeah, it's a site where you get to meet people who are paramedics or doctors or nurses. And the implication is sort of always, even though it's kind of like, well, do you work in the police force, meet other people who do? The implication is always, 
do you fancy nurses? Well, they'll yeah. have a uniform. I thought it was a fetish thing. Yeah. Like, do do you want a hot strapping fireman or, or a, a saucy nurse? Yeah. Uh, and I also thought it was for people who were in the military and might struggle to meet people who were politically aligned with the fact that they go to war for a living. You know, it hadn't occurred to me that actually these people have antisocial or difficult shifts and it might be good for them to meet each other in terms of the, the time that they have available. Except um, he says that uniform dating doesn't allow you to search by hours, so that's obviously a function that it would be good for them to add. Yeah, but I suppose the implication is that all those people, or most people that work in those kind of sectors are going to have difficult shifts yeah. sometimes. So um, it's a natural place to meet people who are uh, under the same kind of pressures that you are. So that does seem like a good idea. I have to say, Phil, you don't say how long you've been using these apps for. Guttingly, sometimes it just does take a long time. You've got to be on them for a while. You can't expect instantaneous results. I think your idea of joining a club to learn Japanese is a great idea, going to meet like-minded people. One thing that did occur to me, though, because that's a course where you're going to be going every week, the same people will attend every session. So whilst I'm not encouraging you to give up on the Japanese, which is a great thing to do, it might be worth considering going to something where the crowd might be different each week so you get a chance well, to meet you different know, folks. If you don't spot anyone you like in week one, maybe love will, love will blossom as you learn about uh, ancient forms of origami or whatever by week five. That's a possibility, it's yeah. possible. Yeah, maybe yeah. the wasabi to his sushi just hasn't <laughs> rocked up yet. But the other thing that occurred to me is if you can't find what you want, Build it. Have you heard of a website called meetup.com? I haven't. It's for people to set up events that they want to do, meetup groups, and invite people to come along. So it works two ways. You can either log on and have a look at what's already happening in Bristol. And there's tons of stuff for people of loads of different interest groups at different times happening there. Or Phil can say, I would like to do this at this time. Who wants to come along with me? Mm. So he can pick something that he's interested in to fit his schedule, invite other people and see who comes along. Now, this isn't specifically a dating app. So there's a chance that the people who, who join you might just end up being friends. But then you might meet a lover through those friends. It's worth a try. Someone to have a sandwich with at four in the morning in Bristol is still good company, isn't it? Precisely. What other suggestions do we have for Phil? Well, I thought it would be a good idea for me to ask other people who are in a similar situation to Phil. So I tapped up a load of my mates who work as paramedics and in clubs and other people who work late nights or, or crazy hours. And did any of them want to fuck him? <laughs> Not without having met him yet. That's fair enough. Lots of them sympathised, though. It seemed like, Phil, I, I don't know whether this is cold comfort, but you're very much not on your own. There were lots of success stories, though. In particular, loads of mates recommended persevering with dating apps, and a lot of them said they'd had a lot of luck on things like Plenty of Fish and Tinder, mm -hmm. but by stating in their profile that they work difficult hours. That helped to manage people's expectations, so if they weren't texting back and forth during the day or whatnot the contacts that they made didn't think that they were being rude they understood that these people were on different sleeping patterns so you could actually literally instead of starting your profile with 34 year old male interested in learning japanese maybe the first sentence should be night shift worker seeking afternoon delight 
Yeah, lots of folks said that brunch was a really good idea for when you had... I thought that was going to be an app. (laughs) (laughs) Now that is a dating app I would join. (laughs) Brunch. (laughs) Meet up for eggs benedict. (laughs) Well, you can create that on meetup.com. Phil can go ahead and do that and say... (laughs) Uh, and say I'm you know I'm looking for a lovely way to end my shift does anyone want to join me for brunch it seems like a lot of people um, date within their field when they have tricky shifts yeah well that's the thing isn't it I mean Phil mentions that most of the other people that work shifts in Bristol at night are male and he doesn't mention that he's gay so I mean that's I mean if he's a truck driver or something he's not necessarily going to find who he wants that way is he well I had a very promising response from a woman who said that um, having been married to two men who were epic snorers she is now specifically dating people who work night shifts because she likes to go to bed alone and undisturbed. She actively looks for someone who's working nights, she says, so that I don't get bothered. I like to be taken to lunch occasionally during the week and I like to to go to bed on my Todd. And is she in the Bristol region? Uh, She doesn't state where she is. Mm. But there's another person as well who got in touch who said that they work for the emergency medical services. They found their fiancé on Tinder and one thing that they found really helpful was quite early on sharing their Gmail calendars and sharing their iPhone calendars so that they could both see when they were available and who was working when. That requires quite a lot of trust. But if you do feel able to be open and uh, communicate so kind of formally with somebody quite early on, then planning like that can mean that dating doesn't feel quite so overwhelming. Well, I've got Phil's email address, so if you're interested either in dating him, uh, if you are in the Bristol region and work nights, or you just have some further advice for Phil, very happy to pass it on. Head to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, click on the feedback form, uh, which is also, Alex, where people have to head to send you a question of sex, which is sponsored by our friends at mycondom.com. And if you want to go there and get yourself a Johnny or some lube or a sex toy... What's the code people you have to use? You can get all of those things with 15% off if you use the code FOXHOLE. Well, that is almost it for this week's edition of The Modern Man, but I do just have time to anoint a new ambassador. It is Julian Lai Hung who sent us a very generous £45 worth of beer money via PayPal. Uh, thank you, Julian. PayPal.me slash modern man, if you'd like to do the same. Uh, he says, awesome job, Ollie, enjoying your noises in Tokyo. Uh, Julian, thank you very much. We only ask for a suggested donation of £3.47, as you know, but uh, obviously I appreciate you 12.9 times more than everybody else. And now pronounce you Manbassador for Tokyo. Omedito Gazimus. Our theme is by Django Django from their debut album, also called Django Django. And this week we end the show with a new track by Manchester Orchestra. It's called The Gold. It's available now on Loma Vista and their new album drops at the end of July. Enjoy. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Just
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.